Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 13, and this morning we are looking at verses 18 through 38. John 13, beginning in verse 18, reading through the end of the chapter, verse 38. Please give your attention to God's holy word. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I had a relatively safe and happy childhood. But there are a few painful memories from my childhood that stick with me. One of those took place when I was in elementary school. All through my 
first five or six years of education, I was best friends with a young man named Raymond. Raymond and I were inseparable through the, those elementary school years. But Raymond and I had a mutual friend named Rich. And over the course of time, Rich became so jealous of the friendship that I had with Raymond that one day he was captured by an evil thought. He actually sat down with a piece of paper and wrote a message to himself, a note to himself. It said basically something like this, Rich, stay away from Raymond or else I'm going to hurt you real bad. And then he signed my name to the note. And then he took that note to Raymond, showed it to Raymond, and Raymond believed that I had written it. And he went and showed it to all of our friends, and they believed it too. And when I finally heard about it, I went to Raymond and I pleaded with him. I said, I didn't write that. That didn't come from me. But he didn't believe me. And he didn't speak to me for months. And even when we kind of reestablished the friendship later, it was never the same again. As I was studying this passage this past week, I came across this quote from R.C. Sproul. R.C. says, Betrayal by a friend or family member is one of the darkest experiences that a human being can endure. Betrayal by a friend or family member is one of the darkest experiences that a human being can endure. Reminds me of that old phrase, the dark night of the soul. And when you think back on those lowest points in your life, the most difficult trials you've been through, if you were to make a list of all of those painful experiences, including both experiences that involved physical pain and experiences that involved emotional or spiritual pain, I would hazard to guess that at the top of that list, many, if not most, of the examples of painful experiences would involve some kind of betrayal in a relationship in your life. Maybe an unresolved conflict with a friend or family member. Maybe infidelity or desertion by a spouse. Maybe abuse or rejection by a parent. Or maybe a split in your church family. All I know is that given the choice between some kind of prolonged physical pain or that kind of emotional, personal pain through betrayal, I'm sure most, if not all of us, would choose to take the physical pain any time. And that emotional pain of being on the wrong end of a betrayal can cause wounds that if they don't heal, can do great damage to your life long term. Well, if you hear nothing else from me this morning as we look at this example of betrayal in Scripture and the life and ministry of Christ, if you carry away nothing else from this message, please remember this one thing. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your pain. In the words of that great prophetic chapter, Isaiah 53, written 800 years before Christ was born, it calls Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. Even those deep emotional pains. 
here in chapter 13, as we said last week, we're entering into that last couple of days of Jesus' life on earth, where he gathered close to him his 12 disciples, and he entered into intimate dialogue with those 12 disciples, preparing them for his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and for carrying on the mission of the kingdom. And as he drew them close, these are the men that he had poured his life into for three years. These are the men that he had taught day in and day out, that he'd lived with, that he'd suffered with, that he had poured himself into. And he's gathered them here into this upper room to observe the last Passover meal with them. And as we saw last week, he taught them a very important lesson by putting on the apparel of a servant and then bowing down before their feet and washing their dirty feet. It's in that context then, as we pick up the reading this week, that in verse 21, he says to them, he just drops a bombshell on them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He had hinted at this before, but now he's saying it plainly, that there could be no mistaking among the disciples that one of them was going to do something terrible to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice, first of all, how Jesus responded to that revelation himself. It says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit as he told them this. That word in the original Greek language is the same word that was used back when Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus four days after his friend had died. And as he observed the family and friends grieving deeply over the loss of Lazarus, it says in that context, using the same exact word, Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit. And so the same response that Jesus has to death and all of its devastation itself is the same response he has to the sin of betrayal that he deals with here in chapter 13. Jesus is fully acquainted with our grief. But what is Jesus trying to teach us? Why does he point it out to the disciples in advance? What does he want us to learn from his own experience of betrayal at the hands of Judas? Well, first of all, we get some insight into the very nature of the sin of betrayal itself. Why does it hurt so bad? Why does it cut us to the core of who we are? Well, it's because betrayal is a violation of trust. Betrayal is a violation of trust. Go back to verse 18. Notice there that as he's preparing to tell the disciples about the betrayer in their midst. He prepares them, first of all, by mentioning that this is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And he quotes there from Psalm 41, verse 9, words that were originally written by King David, the king of Israel. And here's what David wrote. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's very graphic language, and it's meant to pull up visual images to drive home the offensiveness of betrayal. To eat bread with someone in Jewish culture, whether you're talking about Old Testament Jewish culture or first century Jewish culture, 
to eat bread with someone, to receive someone into your home, to sit with them at your table, to share bread with them was to open your lives to them. Hospitality was a huge issue in that culture, much more so than our culture today. And it meant so much to eat bread with someone. It was to basically open your life to them, welcome them in to the inner sanctum of your life and your family life. It was a sign of intimacy and trust. Someone reminded me this week that since we don't have such strong hospitality sense in our own culture, probably a better example in our own context would be to share with somebody all of your passwords. How much would you have to trust someone to share all your passwords with them? That's the kind of trust we're talking about. That's the the way in which you would allow somebody into your life. And then David goes on to write, it's like having someone lift a heel against you. Lift a heel against you. And there he's not thinking of human being interaction there. He's actually thinking of a trusted horse. The idea is a horse that you ride off and a horse that serves you well, but a horse that in a sudden moment will rear up on its rear legs and strike you, kick you across the head with his heel, with his hoof. That's the the image. Again, you trusted, and suddenly they've turned against you and harmed you deeply. It's an apt image of how it feels, isn't it? What's interesting is that most commentators, when if you were to look at commentaries about Psalm 41, most of them believe that King David wrote this during probably the darkest night of his soul. As you look at the life of David, there's a clear place where he was powerfully betrayed. And that was what happened then is that his son Absalom plotted to take the throne away from David. And his means of doing that, he didn't do it by getting a bunch of of, uh, rebels together and storming the castle to take over the throne in Jerusalem. His method of doing it was to win the people over one by one. He stationed himself there in the center of Jerusalem and heard the people's cases and gave answers and and basically won the people over and eventually won over even the people that were closest to David himself, some of the leaders of Israel. As it says there in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was even able to somehow convince a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel, according to scripture, was David's closest advisor, closest counselor, deeply trusted friend. Somehow Absalom was able to convince Ahithophel to turn against David and become Absalom's counselor. And so as Absalom went to Hebron and had himself proclaimed king, and as he proceeded to Jerusalem, Absalom had been so successful in this treachery that David didn't even put up a fight. He fled the city with just his closest family. He'd lost everything, everything, position and possessions. He'd lost everything to his son and one of his closest advisors. And it's in that experience, that dark night of his soul, that he writes Psalm 41 that's quoted here as a prophecy of what would later happen to Christ himself. We read earlier from Psalm 55, and that's another psalm that most commentators believe was written during this same period in David's life. 
And so let me read to you again just the beginning of that passage in Psalm uh, 55. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Listen to the pain in his words. It is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Not only had he eaten bread with these men, not only had he been in close, intimate fellowship with them, but he had worshipped with them in the house of God. And yet they betrayed him. Just a side note here, as you think about the betrayals in your life that have left the damage in your heart, take it to the Psalms. The Psalms understand your pain as only the Spirit of God, the ultimate author of the Psalms, could understand your pain. And there you can find healing. But as you think about it, people often talk, when you look at churches, people often talk about Christians like, you know, they've been burned in church fellowship before, and they'll talk about Christians like, we hurt each other worse than people out there in the world hurt each other. And that is actually probably true. We hurt each other more than people out in the world hurt each other. But don't jump to the conclusion it's because people out in the world are better than we are. We know that's not true. The reason we hurt each other more is because we receive each other into our lives, each other's lives more. We open ourselves up to each other more. We share the depths of who we are, our spiritual longings and our failings and our successes, and we just really open our lives to each other, and therefore we're vulnerable to each other. We can be hurt very badly in that condition. That's why we hurt each other more. So how do we deal with that? If that's what it is, if betrayal is a violation of that kind of trust, how do we deal with it? How do we heal from it? We're all sinners. We're going to keep letting each other down. Well, Jesus says, first step is to examine your own heart. Examine your heart as you respond to this pain. Look at how the disciples respond to Jesus' earth-shattering revelation in verse 22. It says there that the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Isn't it interesting how good of a deceiver Judas was? Because none of them, they'd lived with him closely for three years. None of them suspected him. You don't have a single example of one of the disciples saying, hey, it's got to be Judas, man. You, you, you watch how he lives? Nobody knew it. Matter of fact, John here in verse, is it verse 29, he points out that Judas was still in charge of the money bag. That's how much they trusted this guy. The other gospels give more detail to the interaction that take place at this point in the conversation. The other gospels say that the disciples all came to Jesus and said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And you get the sense, as you hear that question, you get the sense that they're horrified by the idea that they would do anything that would in any way betray their Lord. But there's a little bit of an awareness there that it's possible. A bit of a fear that it could be one of them. You know, that they're the one among the disciples that would do this horrible thing. And what's interesting is that as you put this passage together with the other gospel passages, 
Jesus doesn't do anything to alleviate that fear. He doesn't do anything to relieve them of this burden of saying, could I do this to my Lord? Now we do know that he does indicate to one of the disciples, John tells us there's one of the disciples who finds out who it is. But the other ones, as far as we know, did not know which disciple was to do this treachery. What that says to me is that Jesus wants us to have a healthy distrust of our own hearts. He wants us to be examining our own hearts on an ongoing basis, realizing that we are capable of the worst of betrayal and the worst of sins, apart from his grace. Our best intentions are always corrupted by selfish, sinful, lustful desires. And but for the grace of God, all of us would do what Judas did. Our daily prayer should be those verses we read earlier from Psalm 139, or we heard earlier from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Think about David as he wrote those words in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 about what Ahithophel and what Absalom had done to him. How could he have written those words without being reminded of what he had done to Uriah? He had stolen his wife and then had had arranged to have Uriah murdered to cover his sin. David knew what it was to deeply betray a brother. And then as you look at the end of the passage, skip down to verses 36 through 38 of John 13. There you have that account where, you know, of all the disciples, it doesn't actually say this, but I'm kind of guessing that when all the disciples are going around and saying to Jesus, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? One of the disciples didn't do that. Peter. I think Peter, what we have here is Peter's response. Peter says, I'll never do that, Lord. I'll never deny you. As a matter of fact, I'd lay down my life for you right now if you ask me to. And Jesus says to him, Peter, the rooster crows about 3 a.m. Before that happens, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. Talk about betrayal. Self-examination is a spiritual discipline. Laying your heart open before the word of God and the spirit of God and saying, I know what I'm capable of. Lord, have grace, have mercy, give me strength to not only confess you, but to serve you. Well, let's look at the other side of the equation in terms of the unexamined heart, the heart of Judas. It says back in verse 24 that Peter had tried to find out who the betrayer was He wasn't sitting next to Jesus at the table. It says the disciple whom Jesus loved was actually leaning next to Jesus. And we have said before, and we'll see it again, that's how John referred to himself. That sounds like a, a boastful thing for John to say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, but don't read it that way. It's actually a very humble statement. He's saying, I don't deserve anything from Jesus, but look at how much he loves me in spite of that. So he he designates himself always as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so John is leaning against Jesus at the table. And from somewhere across the table, Peter motions and says, ask Jesus who it is. Of course, Peter's saying, it's not me, obviously. So ask Jesus who it is. 
And Jesus responds in an interesting way. He doesn't say it's Judas. <laughs> he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, why, why that? Why did he indicate Judas in that way? Well, again, going back to the hospitality of the Jewish culture in the first century, if you were the host of a meal and you wanted to give a sign or a token of friendship and honor to a guest at the meal, that's what you do. You take a morsel of bread, you dip it in a bowl of maybe oil or maybe vinegar and, and herbs, and then you would hand it to that guest as a sign of honor and friendship. And that's what Jesus did to Judas. Now that indicated to John, and it sounds like John was the only one who had any clue who the betrayer was, but it also said something very powerful to Judas. It said to him, here's your last chance. I'm giving you one more opportunity to repent and not follow through on this. But notice what the next thing the text says. Satan entered into him. Now, we already had an indication that Satan was working in Judas. If you go back to verse 2 of chapter 13, it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Satan had already been whispering for a while into, into Judas' ear to carry out this terrible plan because of his disillusionment with Jesus. But now it seems to go a very dark step further to where in some way Satan takes possession of Judas. And isn't this another reminder of what Jesus talked about back in chapter 12 about what happens when you keep seeing who Jesus is, hearing his word, seeing his power at work, and you keep rejecting him. You keep rejecting his word. What happens is that your heart becomes hardened. Remember what we read back in chapter 12. Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's interesting that Jesus, at that moment, as Satan takes possession of the heart of Judas, it says that Jesus looks Judas in the eye after having handed him that morsel, and he says to him, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas betrays him at Jesus' command, in a sense. But Jesus is not making Judas do anything he didn't want to do. He isn't making him do anything he didn't plan to do. He's basically saying, get it over with. And what's happening here, as we saw a couple weeks ago, goes back to Romans 2, doesn't it? Where if you keep rejecting the light of the truth of Jesus Christ, if you keep rejecting it over and over and over, there hits a point where God hands you over. He gives you over to your sinful desires. And your heart becomes hard and you become the walking dead. You're beyond repentance. That's the danger of rejecting the truth of Christ, rejecting the gospel over and over. That's what happened to Judas. And John ominously observes that he immediately went out. Judas immediately went out and he says it was night. He's not making a chronological reference there. He's saying Judas is lost. John talks a lot about light and darkness, truth and error, life and death. Judas went out into the night. But notice what Jesus does for his disciples here. This is where I want to end up this morning. 
This is about him preparing his disciples and teaching his disciples. And notice how he uses this horrible event to teach his beloved disciples and point them to the cross where there is grace for both betrayers and those who are betrayed. Let me take you back to verse 19. Look there in verse 19 where Jesus explains his purpose in revealing this impending betrayal. He says to his disciples, I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What's interesting there, if you go to the original language again, is that the word I am is the last word, those are the last two words in his statement. That you may believe that I am. And haven't we seen it over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, that John makes sure that he quotes every time Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, because he wants us to be reminded that that's the name of God. The personal name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am, Yahweh. That you may believe that I am Yahweh is what Jesus is saying here. That you may understand that Judas is not surprising me here. He's not catching me off guard. He's not throwing a monkey wrench into my plans. I am not some kind of unsuspecting, surprised victim of this nefarious plot. This was prophesied a thousand years earlier. This is a part of God's plan of redemption from the beginning. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I'm in control of this whole situation. And I am able even to use the wicked desires and plans of my enemies to further the mission and purpose, the redemptive work that he come to do. He's pointing to the cross. He says, I want to strengthen your faith. I want you to see what I'm doing here so that you're, when it all, ta- they didn't, weren't going to understand it, this probably until long after he was crucified and raised from the dead. But one day they would understand that Christ was in control and this was all part of his plan. And that the lesson to them, to their faith, is this. That even the most painful experiences like betrayal are part of the Lord's plan for our good. They're part of the Lord's plan for our good. Let me take you down now to verse 31. This seems like something kind of out of context here. It seems like kind of an odd little teaching from Jesus to throw in the midst of this painful event. I think it's a shame that we take it out of its context because I think to really understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to put it in its context. Basically, he says, now. You know, the die has been cast. The sequence of events is going to bring about his crucifixion. is going to take place. Now you're going to see my glory. And you're going to see how I reveal the glory of God. Well, how would this hideous betrayal, this hideously ugly event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, how would that bring glory to God the Father and God the Son? Well, it's because it's the ultimate act in the plan of redemption. It's how the perfect justice of a holy God meets with his covenant love and mercy. The cross is the greatest display of the heart of God himself. And it's where we find forgiveness. It's where not only are our sins paid for if we put our faith in Christ, but it's also where we get healing from the sins against us. 
Often I've heard sin described as cosmic treason against God, and that really is what it is, isn't it? I mean, God has done nothing but good to us. He has done nothing but good. He's our creator. He has provided faithfully for us, given us all good things. And somehow we shake our fist at him and reject him and rebel against him and turn our back to him. Cosmic treason to the one who would never betray us ever. The cross is where you're going to find healing. Think about the person who has betrayed you and that list of pains that you've gone through, people that have hurt you badly because they betrayed you. Think about one of those persons. Either Jesus has died for that person's sins and what they did to you, as awful and painful as it was, it was paid for 2,000 years ago in full. And they are now forgiven and seen in God's eyes as righteous and holy. Or they've rejected that gospel and maybe even will continue to reject that gospel until death and then they will pay for that sin fully. Fully. Themselves. Either way, it's off your shoulders. You're free. You're free to heal. The wound can be closed because of the cross. Betrayal hurts badly. You know, I talked about my childhood betrayal. In some ways, it's kind of a silly little event, as painful as it was at the time, and the big picture of my life, it hasn't had a huge impact on how I live. But as I've become an adult, you have a tendency to put a little more distance between yourself and people, but when you get hurt, when you get betrayed, it cuts even deeper. I went through my own dark night of the soul about six years ago. During one single six-month period, I had one of my best friends over a 10-year period who became an elder in my church try to change the direction of the church from the direction we'd been going and eventually decided to try to force me out of my position as pastor. And while that was all happening, and while that was all dividing the session of my church, at the very same time, during that same few months, my second son was being led as a college student, was being led into sin and darkness and into atheism and eventually to reject Christ and eventually to reject me and his mother and his brother and his sisters and cut us off completely. That was the darkest period of my life. Wanted to give up on a lot of things during that time. But God is faithful. God has been with me over six years as I've dealt with that. And he has humbled me through the process to deal with my own sins in those situations as well as many others. And he has preserved me from the kind of hardening of heart that happens in unbelievers when they face that kind of betrayal. He's helped me to find renewed forgiveness and healing. And he's kept my heart soft. I just want you to understand that that's how God works. 
That's why he's in control of these situations, is that softness of heart sometimes has to come through deep wounds. And that's why I want to point you back to that passage and say, don't ever take verse 34 out of context. We hear verse 34 a lot. It's a very commonly quoted verse. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Understand that that's in the context of Judas betraying him. It's in the context of calling us to love as he loves. And you know how I said that to truly love and be in an intimate relationship with somebody, you have to open up your life to them. You have to bring them in close and you have to make yourself vulnerable to them. It's in that context that Jesus says, keep loving. Don't do what the unbelievers do. They have no hope. They have no cross. They've got no gospel. They've got no future. Don't do what they do. You know what they do? They put up the wall. They make their skin thicker to protect themselves. Jesus is saying, don't do that. That's what the world does. Don't do that. Keep loving. Love one another. You know why? Because it's part of our mission. That's what he says in verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have that kind of love for one another. Because that's supernatural love. A stone-cold dead heart can't love like that. That's the love of Christ. That's the love of the cross that will look at a betrayer and say, come back into my life. I forgive you. I accept you. I'll love you again. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being so much like the world. Teach us to love as Christ loved. Teach us to have the courage because of the cross, because of the gospel, to reach out and love one another. Lord, heal our wounds. Thank you for what Christ did to make that possible. And Lord, may we not just be healed, but may we be stronger, more loving, that the world might know where there is hope and forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life. In Christ alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.